So we are starting a new sermon series. Of course, with Easter having passed, we had our whole Easter series, finished that up, and now we're, we're starting a new series. And we've entitled this In the Beginning. So probably you would guess, oh, it's probably about the book of Genesis. And, and you'd be right. It is indeed about the book of Genesis. And so we're going to be going back right to the start of the Bible, to the beginning, to the beginning of the story of, of creation. In fact, that's where we're going to start really in the fullest sense, in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, right at verse 1. And we're going to be going through to chapter 2, verse 3. And this is the story of creation and, and certainly an important story in the Bible. Loads of important stories in the Bible, the whole thing's uh, of immeasurable importance and significance, but the story of creation, of course, sort of sets the foundation in the sense of all that comes, right, as we think of what we're going to talk about next week, the fall, sort of that natural second story as we work our way through uh, the book of Genesis, right, well, you don't have the fall if you don't have a created order in creation. You don't have redemption and restoration in Christ if, well, you don't have creation and there is no mankind, no created order. And so certainly this sort of provides much of the foundation for all that follows, all of Scripture, all of the story of the whole created order and how God has worked in wondrous and marvelous ways, even though we sin, bringing about wondrous redemption and restoration in Christ his son. So this sort of very important story certainly sets the foundation for it all. So we want to make sure to take a look at it. And we're just going to dive right in here. So you can open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, right to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to read this, but I'll pause at points and I'll sort of interject. We'll kind of just work our way through verse by verse. As I said, starting at Genesis 1, 1, and we'll go through to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. And let's read it. So it starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. And I want to pause here just for a moment and sort of interject for the, the, you know, for the first time. And so we have here, this is day one, of course, we're going to see at the end of this little paragraph here that, of course, this is day one. But this is sort of the initial part of day one. And what does God do, right? This, in a sense, at the beginning, there's nothing but God himself. He's all that, he, that exists, but of course he winds up creating, and he creates the heavens, he creates the earth. But he chooses to create, in a sense, over sort of stages, right? We know day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, in sort of a very orderly and structured manner, as we're going to take a look at and, and sort of pick it apart, dive deeply. But at this point in creation, not that there's anything wrong with it, but it's not sort of a finished work in the sense of it isn't this created order that's, that's all completed as we see at the end of sort of the six days of creation. In fact, that's really what's being said here. The earth was formless and empty. And it's not just saying, oh, let's talk about the shape of the earth that's sort of formless, but rather formless, particularly when it's in reference to land in, in Scripture, in, in Hebrew as we're talking about, can mean uninhabitable. It can sort of refer to this uninhabitable wasteland. And I would say that's the sense in which it's meant here. The earth is not just sort of formless, that is a good translation of the word, but what it's really getting at here is at this point God's created the earth, but he's not finished with his created work. He could have done it all in one instant, but of course he chooses to do it in this orderly progressive way. And at this point, the earth is created, but it's, it's not inhabitable at this point, right? And not only is it not inhabitable, it's uninhabitable, but of course it's also empty. And the sense there is not just that it's empty, but rather that it's, that it's empty of his created order that he's going to ultimately wind up wind up creating here in the rest of days one through six. So it's uninhabitable and indeed uninhabited as well. 
Of course, we're going to see that changes as sort of the rest of this creation account goes on, and the earth will be made by God inhabitable and indeed inhabited as well. But so while I'd say formless and, and empty are, are good translations of those words, I think a little bit more nuanced what, what is being said here is that the earth was uninhabitable and indeed uninhabited. And then going on, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Right? We just see in this, in this instance here, and, and we see it throughout this whole account, just the extent of the power of God, the immeasurable, infinite power of God, that he just says something, right? He just says it, let there be light, and it is so, right? That's just the infinite power of God, that he speaks it, and it comes to pass. So, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And I do want to pause at this point before we go on to day two, and then three, and then four, and five, and six. What we're going to see here as we move our way through is that the first three days, right, there really is a very much ordered structure. God is not a God of, of chaos, but rather very much he's a God of order. And the way in which he creates reflects that and reflects his character. And so he creates in a very orderly manner. And maybe we've read this a million times and we've heard it in Sunday school. You can think back to when you were a kid and, okay, how many times did I hear the story of creation? But maybe we've never taken note of the fact that days one, two, and three are really the establishment here, God is creating realms in a sense. And what we're going to see is that then days four, five, and six are the filling of those realms, and not just the filling of those realms, but in fact, in the filling of those realms, he also establishes that which will, in a sense, govern or rule over that realm as well. And so we're going to see that day one and four correspond and go together, and two and five go together, and three and six go together. And this is no accident, it's just this is the way God chose to create in a very much ordered structure. And so I'll sort of call attention to this. I just wanted to give you a heads up about it. But as we work our way through, I'll sort of remind us of this, and we'll get to see how God creates in this wondrous, orderly structure. So in day one, what does he do, right? Creates the light, the darkness. Of course, it starts with creating, you know, the heavens and the earth. But, but of course, then he creates this realm, specifically the realm of, or realms of day and night. And we'll see that in day four, he's going to fill those realms and create that which sort of governs or rules over those realms. So moving on now, We'll go to day two, right? This is verse six where we left off. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Right, so instead of at the get-go right here at the start of the second day, we have just sort of one big collection or mass of water. But God says, oh, I'm going to separate that. And so you have the water that's below, sort of at this point, one big ocean. But you also have the waters that are above. Think of sort of precipitation, rain, etc. And, and in the midst there, what do you have now? You have this, this realm that is created. So you have the creation of the realm of the ocean here that God creates as he separates the waters. But also the creation of the, the realm of the sky that is now sort of this expanse between the waters below and the waters above. So he creates these new realms, right, the sky, and think of the ocean. And as I said, in day five, we're going to see God then filling these realms. And indeed, that's what we're going to see. So continuing on, 
Verse 9, this is now on to day 3. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And so what do we see here right now? Sort of the dry ground appears, right? Instead of sort of one big mass of water, in a sense, we have the dry ground appearing in the midst of the water, and the water sort of gather and collect to their various oceans and seas. And so now we have this new realm appearing, right? And it is the land. But not just the land itself, but it's the land that is now uh, filled with vegetation. So there's sort of an initial filling of this realm with vegetation. But in a sense, all of these trees, they're part of the realm. And we're going to see it's the creatures, right? The living creatures, animals, and of course, ultimately mankind that God really fills this realm with. And of course, mankind we're going to see is the one that rules over it. So now we move on. At this point, we've done day one, two, and three, and these are sort of the establishment of these realms, and now we get to the filling part. So we move on now to day four. This is verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light, the sun, of course, to govern the day, and the lesser light, the moon, to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. Right, so now we finally get to sort of the filling side of things, not just the establishment of the realms. And here we see, remember, sort of go back to day one. Well, that was the establishment of the realms of, think of day and night, right? Light and darkness, day and night. Well, now God fills those realms, right, with stars, with the sun, with the moon. And, and not just fills them, but of course we have now the sun that rules over, that sort of governs the daytime, and the moon that sort of rules over or governs the night. And so God here is really creating in very much this orderly structure. And then going on to day five, this is verse 20. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Right, so now we have day five. Again, we sort of want to go back to, to day two and say, well, you know, what was day two? That's the day that it corresponds to, right? And that was the establishment of the realms of the, in a sense, the ocean or the seas, right? And also the establishment of the realm of the sky. And so, of course, what does God do here? He fills it, and the things with which he fills it are sort of the things that sort of rule over that realm as well. So he fills the sky with the birds, right? He fills the ocean with every creature that lives in, in, in the ocean, right? Fish, all of it. Um, and so he's filling that realm as well. 
And then finally we get to day six. Pretty significant for us because it's where we show up, though not right at the outset. This is verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So at this point, right, think of what was the realm. This was sort of the dry ground, but not just the dry ground, right, the dry land. But of course, it was all of the vegetation, right, all the trees and plants that were a part of it. And now you have here the animals that sort of fill this realm. But God's not done with day six. He sort of has what is sort of the pinnacle of his creation here. And of course, it's mankind. So here, verse 26, we're going to see man show up on scene, of course. God create him. So this is verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And so I'll sort of pause here. There's certain things I want to say about this. First of all, this, the let us, right? We might look at that and say it's a little bit unusual. It's plural. What's sort of going on here? You know, God doesn't just say that, that he singular is going to, right? Let me make man in my image. But it's, it's plural here. And I'd say there are a few ways we can interpret this, one of which is sort of the uh, majestic plural, a plural of majesty. Think of sort of a royal plural where uh, that can be the case in the ancient Near East. And you see this in other languages as well, where even though you're sort of a singular, you can use the plural in referring to yourself. And it's sort of a, a sign of your greatness and elevation. And so certainly it could be a plural of majesty here that God's using. It certainly also could be a little hint at sort of the three-in-one nature of God, of course, that, that though he's one being, of course, there are three persons, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so is that sort of the plural here, let us, right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, that's, that's certainly possible. And in a sense, we don't necessarily have to pick one and choose. It could be, well, both could be intended. Certainly another possible explanation here is that God's sort of saying this and declaring this in the midst of his heavenly court and throne room. And so you could have angels here, right? We don't see the creation of the angels as part of this uh, creation account. Doesn't mean that it doesn't happen somewhere in the midst of this, right? It could be happening right there at the beginning of day one, right, as God creates the heavens and the earth. But it's not specifically stated, but we could have God here sort of saying this. And of course, it's not that the angels are going to participate in this act of creation, but he sort of includes them in a sense as being present here. And so it's sort of let us do this with them in his presence. That's a possible explanation as well. Again, it could be a little bit of all of them, but just want to address the, well, why the plural? Why let us instead of God just saying, let me make man in my image? But now I want to talk about sort of what does it mean, right, to be made in, in God's image, right? It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And I'd say there's, there's sort of a lot of things. Of course, ultimately means that, that we're created in a way that's sort of patterned after God, after his, his own character, his own identity in a sense. Not to say that, that we're just like God to the same extent that he is, of course. We're not, we're not divine by any means. But in a sense, we have some lesser sharing in the character of God. Right? So just as God is infinite in knowledge, wondrously knowledgeable and reasoning, right? we're also high reasoning and, and functioning, uh, mental, high mental capacity creatures. And so in a sense, we sort of reflect that character of God. Right? God is a God of love. Well, he creates man capable 
full of love and, and all sorts of emotions. And so in a whole host of ways, we're created, in a sense, in the likeness, in the image of God. Uh, even in the sense of what immediately follows this, if we just read on, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over, and then he goes on and lists basically the whole created order, right? That's another way in which we're made, in a sense, in the image of God, in his likeness, just as he is great high king over all. In a sense, he creates man to be, in a sense, a, a vice king, right? A vassal king, an assistant king on earth to rule over his created order. And so just one more way we could go on and on about all of the ways, in a sense, in which we reflect God's own character and even his own roles and so forth to an immeasurably lesser degree, right? We're not divine, we're not God, but still in us there's sort of a reflection of, of God's character, and certainly that's part of it. Uh, I would say that for anyone in the ancient Near East, if they were to hear this and read this, let us make man in our image, I would think that they would interpret it in somewhat of a literal sense. And I think all too often we think, well, God's spirit, he can't possibly have some sort of form, so it can't mean that for man to be made in the image of God, well, that it's talking about sort of in any sort of physical way, in any sort of way related to appearance. And I'd say that's not necessarily so. First of all, just because something's spirit, we could think of angels and their spiritual creatures, and they can have forms and appearances. I would say God is not bound by any sort of form, the way that I can't change how I look. I can't change my appearance. I'm a human being. I have arms and legs and so forth. I'm bound by it in a sense. God isn't bound by any sort of form or, or shape or, or, or anything in that sense. But God can still, knowing that he's going to create all of this, he can sovereignly choose to, to have a form. It's not sort of to the core of his nature of this is the way I look and I can't change it, but he could sovereignly say, I want to reveal myself to my created order in some sort of spiritual but still form, and what will I sovereignly choose? And so he can, in his sovereignty, choose this is the form that I am going to sort of take upon myself as I reveal myself to my creation. And I would say that then God says, I will make man patterned after that same form. And so that God has a form that he reveals himself to his creation with, and it looks somewhat like the human form, that we were made after that image, in that likeness. And I think any ancient Near Eastern person, and we have to certainly interpret scripture in light of its context, which means in light of the rest of scripture, but it means in light of its historical context too. And I think anyone in the ancient Near East would have read it this way. That's just what it would mean to be made in the image of something. And they'd be thinking very much, not just the character, that would be part of it, that we sort of are reflective of God's own character, but they would think appearance as well. And why not? Why can't we sort of reflect the appearance of God? Not that he's bound by any appearance or form, right? I'm not saying that. But that he can sovereignly choose some sort of form or appearance with which to reveal himself to creation and that he has then made man patterned after that. And I would say that that's also what's being spoken of here. But I think there's also a, another layer of it too. And if we think of the use of the language of image in the Bible, particularly in the sense of what we might often think is sort of pagan usage of it, is often the language of image can be used in reference to idols, right? Idols indeed in scripture are called images. And there's a reason for that because they were thought, this is the way they were designed, this is the way sort of the pagan world of the ancient Near East operated. And even in parts of the world today, it, it still operates this way. When they made an idol, they made it with the mind mindset of this idol is made to look just like they thought the deity looked like. So if they were creating some sort of idol, they carved it out of wood, maybe they cast it in some sort of precious metal, their thinking was this is what the deity looks like and this is an image, a representation of that deity. 
But it goes further than that. Part of the thinking was that this idol was then supposed to be filled with that deity's presence. That was sort of part of idolatry in the ancient Near East. That's the way it operated. And I would say that what we see here in Scripture is sort of a little bit of a hint that we were made, in a sense, in the image of God as sort of images of God, not in the sense of we're idols, but in the sense that we were always intended and made to have God dwell within us as we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us now as followers of Christ. I'd say this is just sort of a little hidden glimpse of that, just a little a little foretaste of it or, or speaking of it way ahead of time already in, in the beginning, right here in Genesis, saying that this is sort of God's intent from the beginning for us to, in a sense, be images of his, not just looking like him, reflecting his character, but even in sort of a deeper sense, ultimately, that he will one day dwell within us, of course, in the Holy Spirit. But so going on, then I'll read this again, sort of recap. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And notice here that, that we are given a role, a function. I sort of touched upon it quickly here, but we are to ultimately be, in a sense, creature kings. God has appointed us to that role. Not that we're above God or equal to him in our kingly role. We're certainly 100% under him. But nonetheless, sort of, we are the earthly kings. We are to be rulers over his created order under his supreme kingship as well. And that's part of the function and the role that he has given to us. But going on, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Right? Everything was perfect, right? There was no brokenness. We know sort of how the story's going to go. Next week we'll talk about it. The fall, everything is corrupted as a result of sin. But at this point, everything's perfect. Everything's wonderful. Everything's glorious. It is indeed very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then we get, of course, to the seventh day. This is chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. But so in a sense, to recap, I, again, I want us to sort of see the framework, see the, the ordered structure, nature in, in which God creates here. He could certainly have done it in less than six days and then one day of resting. He could have done it in an instant. But of course, he chose to do it this way, to do it in a very much orderly and structured fashion, creating, of course, these realms, right? And then ultimately, of course, days four, five, and six, filling those realms and creating the, the things that will ultimately rule over and govern those realms. And then, of course, closes with the day of rest. But sort of addressing creation, it's certainly one of those that even within the church, right, there are a whole host of views, 
whether, oh, do we come to this and do we interpret this literally? I'll sort of say up front that that's my viewpoint. I'm not saying that it's the only valid viewpoint, but I think it's, in my opinion, the best way to interpret sort of what is before us in Genesis chapter one and the first part of chapter two, that probably it's the best way to interpret all that's there. But I'm not saying it's the only way. We don't necessarily have to come to this and say, clearly what's being spoken here, spoken of here is six literal 24-hour days of work and then a seventh literal 24-hour day of rest. Again, that's my view. But I think that we can certainly have other views, and I don't want us to, to get all bent out of shape that perhaps we have different views of creation. You can have, I won't go over all of them, but maybe you have more of a day-age view where a day isn't 24 hours, but it's sort of some long span of time, and we don't necessarily know how long, but some sort of age. That's certainly a possible interpretation. Uh, that are, uh, there are others that are even a little bit more literary in nature. Um, one of them is a, the framework hypothesis. There are other names to it, but that's certainly one of the well-known names. Uh, and there are a lot of great evangelical scholars who hold to this, or, or pastors as well, or Christians who hold to this view. And it's somewhat similar in the sense of recognizing this framework that we just talked about. And I do think there is this framework in creation of the creation of these realms, right, on days one, two, and three, and then the filling of those realms, days four, five, and six. But what we do see at times in the ancient Near East, and this evidence of this, not with the word for day, not with the word yom in Hebrew, but we do see in the ancient Near East uh, the usage of certain words. In one case, the word for house is used um, to represent, in a sense, what we might use as the word chapter, right? So sort of chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and on and on and on. And so it's very possible that the word day here, just like the word house in that sense, could be used in the sense of chapter. And so could here as the story of creation is being told, is this not maybe some sort of chronological semi, I don't want to say scientific, but sort of semi-scientific or very literal interpretation of here's what happened and that's what happened after that and very much a chronology. But is this more looking at, at sort of different themes in creation and they're structured into these six chapters and then a seventh chapter for, for the day that God rests. And so in a sense, instead of day one, day two, day three, it's really chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, all the way to seven. And sort of there's a thematic structuring of what God has done in creation. And that's what's being spoken of here, and it's not what's not being given here is sort of a chronology of creation, but sort of a, a thematic and seven chapters rendering of what took place in creation, but maybe in a varied order, right? And so that's certainly a legitimate interpretation. It's not mine. It's not one that I hold to, but I know plenty of people who do hold to it. And ultimately, what's important is that we come to Scripture, we see the validity of, of this, and, and affirm that this is God's word, that this is inerrant, and maybe we're going to have different nuances to how we choose to interpret this. And certainly there are varied ways that we could come to it, but um, I don't want us to overly, be overly divided on the nuances of exactly what we believe the creation story is trying to say. That said, I would caution us. I know there's certainly a rise in more of a theistic evolution type of view of, of creation and some Christians sort of espousing that and saying, well, can't we believe in evolution, but just believe, well, is this something that God used, right? Evolution and God just used that to create man and all of these different animals and so forth. But I'd say it's not really compatible with the creation account and what's going on here because, again, God's creation here is very good. It is perfect. There is no flaw. The fall hasn't taken place. So there isn't death. There isn't a scarcity of resources. There isn't this whole situation that's sort of required for 
what people would say if you are one who believes in evolution, you would sort of say are the requirements for it to take place. There isn't, in a sense, a need for survival of the fittest because, well, all survive. There is no death. There is no hardship. There is no scarcity of resources and so forth. There aren't those criteria that those who believe in evolution would say are necessary for the evolutionary process. But rather, of course, everything's good, everything's perfect, there is no death, no imperfection in any way. And so this isn't the world that re evolution, in a sense, would require. So I would sort of caution ag us against any sort of um, theistic evolutionary view. Maybe that's your view. If it is, I'd maybe encourage you to look into other potential views. But anyway, I don't want us to be overly divided, but sort of talking about the creation account, I think it's worth spending some time just addressing the variation of views on how we are to interpret this. But sort of moving on, I, I want us, as always, not just to, to come to the text here and say, well, what's taking place? What does this mean? Help me to understand God's word. We, we want to do that. We want to understand God's word and say, well, what's going on here? But then ultimately, we want to have some sort of takeaway and say, say you know, so what? what? What's our application? How does this change or how does this impact how I'm going to live my life day in and day out? And really, I, I want us to focus on, in a sense, two main takeaways, right? One is as we talked about here, we even just talked about it recently, but as we look at this whole created order that God made here, it's, it's perfect, it is wondrous, it is glorious. Uh, there is no sin, there is no imperfection at this state. We know, of course, right, we know how the story goes, and man eats that fruit, and sin, and corruption, and all of that, and, and of course all of creation is subjected to that. But ultimately, right, as if we think of before all of that, if we go back before the fall, everything was wondrous and glorious, and perfect. And the reality is, right, maybe we lose sight of this at times, and I think sometimes as we think of what Christ has done for us and, and the work of redemption and ultimately the restoration that he will bring about of all things on that last day when he returns, we sort of become selfish and we sort of focus it all on ourselves and we lose sight of the fact that, in fact, all of creation will have a share in that, right? And I want to read for us, just sort of illustrating this point, I want to read Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, just showing that Ultimately, when Christ returns, he's going to restore everything back to the way it was before the fall. It's not like this broken world is just, you know, we're just going to keep on living in a world where there's death and suffering. Or it's not like, well, God's going to do away with that, but then we'll just sort of be these little spiritual blobs up in heaven forever. And, and no, that's not the case. But rather, there'll be a new creation, right? A restoration of the created order to the way it was right back before the fall when everything was perfect. And we'll be a part of it, right? We will have a share in that. We will be on the new earth as a part of the new creation. And this is what's spoken of here in Revelation. And it's chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And I want us to sort of, as, as we read this too, think of the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, think of, particularly, it's, it's the part of the creation story that flows after Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, right? We sort of read the creation account, version 1, but then we see the second one that sort of zeroes in a little bit more on the creation of man and then, right, Adam and then Eve from Adam and so forth and so on. Uh, but we get a lot of the details of, of sort of the Garden of Eden and what's going on there. And we see a lot of those same elements here in Revelation. And what I would say is what's being said in that, by having all of those parallels, what God's doing there is, is intentionally drawing that parallel and making a statement that things are going to be ultimately restored to the way they were back before the fall. Think of in the Garden of Eden. So let me read it. Revelation chapter 22. Sort of we went from the beginning of the Bible. Now we're going all the way right to the end pretty much. And, and so 22, verses 1 through 5, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water 
of life, right? So this is the new creation, but more specifically, this is the new Jerusalem that's a part of the new creation. So he says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. So already there, we might be thinking, well, boy, if I think of the Garden of Eden, isn't there a river that flows through it? And right, it sort of forks into four different rivers that flow out of that. And right here, what do we see in the new Jerusalem? Right here is a part of the new creation. Well, that's a river, right, that flows through it, right, from, of course, the throne of God and of the Lamb. But that's, it's not like, oh, the parallels end there. But if we keep going, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, right? Already there, we should be thinking, oh, isn't that tree of life, right? Doesn't that show up in the Garden of Eden way long ago, right? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but also the tree of life, right? And so already we're sort of seeing these, these parallels. And it goes on, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, no longer will there be any curse, right? There's no imperfection, right? Think of the curse of sin, all of those consequences, right? That's no more. Again, that's just like before the fall. Think Garden of Eden, before the fall, right? Everything was perfect. There was no curse. There was no sin. There was no effect or consequence or punishment as a result of sin. Everything was perfect. And that's what's being said here. Everything will be perfect. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And notice that God-given role that really God gave to us all the way back going to creation, all the way back to creation, to ultimately rule over his created order, right? We still have that role. We will ultimately reign with Christ, those who belong to him, those who trust in him, who are, who are united to him, having faith in him, united in him in his death, his resurrection, having life in him. Those of us who belong to him, what will happen? Well, we'll be a part of this new created order where everything's restored to a perfect state, just as it was before the fall. We'll have a share in that, but not only that, we will reign as we were always intended to, and we will reign with Christ over this wondrous glory new created order forever and ever and ever. And this is sort of one of the takeaways that I want for us as we think about, as we read the story of creation, right, I want us to realize that that's coming back. We don't just have to look around us and say, oh, look at how things are broken, you know, animals die, they eat one another, all these consequences, we die, right, all, all of those consequences of the fall, we need to recognize that's ultimately going to go away, and the way things were created in the beginning, good, very good, perfect, that's coming back. And that's cause for great joy, it's cause for great hope, it's cause for great celebration to recognize that this is going to take place, everything will be made back the way it was, restored back to the way it was before the fall, perfect, and we'll have a share in it, and we'll be there, and we will experience perfect joy and peace there in the new created order with the Lord Jesus, ruling and reigning with him over it all. And so as we read the creation account, I want us to remember ultimately what's in store for us as well, what is to come when Christ returns, that he will restore it all, and that that is cause for great joy, great celebration. And our response just should be to celebrate that, to rejoice in what's in store for us, and ultimately just also to give God thanks that he is going to do this wondrous work and that we will have a share in it. But I want us to have another takeaway. I said there were two, and this is sort of the second. As we think about creation, certainly as we look at creation and we see just how wondrous and great and vast and beautiful, right, and we get a glimpse of that, right? You can, 
hear all the statistics, I don't know the exact numbers, but how many stars in each galaxy and just how great and grand that is and then think, well, there's not just one galaxy, but then how many seemingly limitless numbers. And then you can not just look at the big scale of creation, but even sort of get your microscope and look at the human body or some other living creature and just the detail and the order and the structure and for it all to fit together and work is just mind-blowing and baffling and boggling. And so we see, in a sense, the greatness of creation. We see sort of the beauty, the splendor, the glory of creation. And in a sense, even as we look around and we see all of this, this is in the broken, fallen state, not in the perfect state as it was before the fall that we're actually reading about here at the beginning of Genesis. And what we realize is that in that, in the greatness and, and glory of creation that we see, we're really getting just this teeny, itty-bitty, infinitesimally small glimpse of the infinite magnitude of the greatness and glory of God. That in a sense, the created order reflects his greatness and glory. And so as we go about our daily lives, I think it's easy sort of, you know, you get up, you head to work, you do your thing, and maybe you don't take note of the creation that's just sort of all around us, especially at spring, I would sort of hope with the time of year it is that we take a little bit more note of, oh, the leaves are starting to come out and things are sort of coming back to life and it's beautiful and it's warm and we can get outside a little bit more. But I think even still it's easy sort of to take that all for granted and I just want to encourage us at times to sort of just stop, just sort of look around, just sort of marvel at the greatness and beauty and glory of creation and then realize that that's nothing, right? That's just this teeny little reflection of the greatness and glory of God. And to have that response as we sort of marvel over creation to all the more, immeasurably more, marvel over the infinite greatness and glory of God and just have that response to, to bow down, to worship him as he so rightfully deserve. So do that. Take note of creation. Take note of its beauty, of its grandeur, of its splendor, its glory, and just recognize that's just a little glimpse of God and his greatness, infinite greatness and glory. And then just praise him and worship him as he is due. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this wondrous act of creation that should just blow our minds, that you would create and we see your great power in it, that you just speak it forth and it is so. That is the nature of your infinite power. Lord, and certainly we see in creation, even as we look all around us, and this is the broken, fallen state of creation, and yet even still, if we really take the time to stop and notice, we see just the seemingly limitless beauty and vastness and greatness of it, and yet it's nothing compared to you. It's just this teeny, itty-bitty reflection of the infinite greatness and glory of you, our God. And so may we take the time to notice the creation around us and recognize that it is that reflection of you in a seemingly immeasurably small way, Lord. But may we look at creation, see that reflection of you, and respond just by marveling at you marveling over the infinite nature of your glory and beauty and splendor and power and greatness and majesty. And may we just have that all-appropriate response of just worshiping you, bowing down and worshiping you, our great and glorious God. And Lord, also may we never lose sight of what is to come. And often we think of what is to come only from the viewpoint of ourselves and our stake in it. But we must remember that you are going to restore all things, and that includes the whole of creation. And you are going to restore it to the way it was 
before the fall, but even more glorious, Lord, than that. And we will have a share in that and how wondrous and how glorious that is. We know we don't deserve it, and yet you graciously bless us in that way and give that to us. And may that be something that we always keep at the forefront of our minds. What's coming? What's down the road? What's in eternity for us? That you are going to return, Lord Jesus, and that when you do, you will restore all things, make everything perfect, do away with sin, with finality, do away with every imperfection, with finality, usher in this wondrous, glorious, perfect, new created order, and we will be a part of it, and we will rule and reign with you, Lord Jesus, over it all. And what a wondrous, glorious inheritance that we ought never to forget and that we ought to forever give you thanks and praise for. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.